Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. God's Word says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the, praise, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished Upon us and all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Lord, may these words be to the praise of your glory. May our lives be to the praise of your glory. It's in your Son's name we pray. Well, Phil was a young man in college known for his frugality. Frugal Phil would flip the breakers off in his house before he went to bed so that unused electricity would not be used during the night. This was a great plan until he realized his food kept spoiling because the refrigerator was being turned off. Frugal Phil would keep his windshield wipers in his car because leaving them out would cause them to be deteriorated. So you've got to keep them in your car till it rains, and then you jump out and put them on. Frugal Phil topped this all off when on his honeymoon, when they went to the place to stay, they asked, would you like a private room or a hostel-style room with a shared bathroom? And he said, hostel room, much to the chagrin of his now wife. Well, whether frugal people or hoarders, there's almost always some fear of running out, of not having enough. Well, Paul expounds many themes in Ephesians, but one prominent one is telling us of our riches in Christ. You're in Ephesians, look down again. We're going to look at several verses real quickly. Ephesians 1, 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Look down in Ephesians 2.4. But God being rich in mercy. Ephesians 2 verse 7. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 8, where he says, 
To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Or Ephesians 3.16, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with the power with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Do you realize how fabulously wealthy you are spiritually? Do you live each day with confidence, hope, joy, and trust due to the wealth you have in Christ? Tragically, we often live as frugal fills. We have great resources, but we live each day as though we're spiritual paupers. We think we have no reason for confidence or joy or hope or trust. We act as though there's no source of hope to which we can cling to. All the while, we have immeasurable, unsearchable riches. Paul writes to these believers to tell them, to remind them to live in light of their wealth in Christ. If I may say a few things about our study through Ephesians, and then we'll look at this introduction. Going through Ephesians is going to be slightly different than I normally do. If you come regularly, you know we often read a passage, and I look at a whole section and we look at that. And so when we just finished First and Second Kings, we had about 59 sermons over 47 chapters, almost a chapter a time. Or a few years ago, we looked at Galatians, and though there were six chapters, we had about 17 sermons. But for Ephesians, there's so much wealth of information that it'll take about 50 sermons to get through the whole book. You know, the value of looking at a whole section is that you make sure you don't lose the forest through the trees. You make sure you're understanding the context. But sometimes, the trees and the forest are so beautiful, you just need to stop, put your chair down, and look at the tree from many different angles. So we will spend a little bit longer going through Ephesians so we can see the many multifaceted beauties of what Paul tells us. Now, as we go through... It would be helpful if at some point, or many points, you at home read to or listened to Ephesians yourself. I went online, and I sometimes use BibleGateway.com, and I read out of the ESV, and I looked, how long would it take to listen to all of Ephesians? It's about 20 minutes. So probably for most, on your way to work and your way home, you could listen to all of Ephesians, at least every day. Or as you're doing the dishes, you could probably hear all of Ephesians. A great way to make sure as we look at the tree... We don't lose the forest. Well, to begin this series, we were going to look at the ter- first few ver- verses and see three things. First, God's messenger in the first part of verse 1. Then God's audience in the second part of verse 1. And then God's message in the second verse. So Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, it begins, Paul. Now you know I'm going slow because I read one word and we're pausing. Paul is here, not the recipient of the letter. If you're new to the Bible, you might think, oh, this letter is being written to Paul because that's how we write letters. If I want to write a letter to Stan, I say, Stan, how are you doing? And you go, oh, that's to Stan. And I put my name at the end, but their letters began differently. The author would put their name at the beginning of the letter. And knowing the author is vital to accurately understanding a message or letter. If we put a piece of art up here and I said, oh, that painting's garbage. Well, you probably shouldn't listen to me because I'm an artistic nincompoop. But if we put the painting up and Royal says, oh, that painting's garbage. Well, you should listen. He's an artist. He's an art teacher. He knows what's good and bad. I don't really know. Who the messenger is 
makes all the difference in the world in what is being communicated. And the fact that Paul writes this letter with this message is astounding when you remember who he was. In fact, his birth name, as we read earlier in Acts chapter 9, was not even Paul, but rather Saul, like the first king of Israel. And we read earlier how much he hated Christians, that he was there and he participated in the killing of Stephen, the disciple of Christ. That he then wanted to get permission and then went to hunt down and arrest Christians. Yet on the Damascus road, Jesus appeared to Saul. Saul then changed from a man who hated Jesus, who hated his followers, who hated the fact that they claimed he was the Messiah, to then, at the end of chapter 9, or middle of chapter 9 actually, it says, Paul confounded the Jews by proving that Jesus was the Christ. He went from hating this idea that Jesus was the Messiah to being one who proved to others it's true. Saul had thought before this that his religious efforts were what mattered. And that what this man from Nazareth said, well, that's blasphemous. Yet then he came to see that Jesus was not a blasphemer. Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ. And that though Jesus was rich for all eternity, yet for the sake of his people, he became poor. So that by his poverty, we might become rich. Thus Paul works and he labors and to tell the Jews and Gentiles of the riches they can have in Christ. Now we read next that Paul was not just any Christian though, for he was an apostle of Christ Jesus. That's what it says in verse 1. Now the word apostle comes from the word apostolos, called a transliteration, where you just kind of have the same word just moved over. Apostle comes from apostolos, which means sent one. And the word can have a broad meaning or a narrow meaning. In one sense, every single Christian in here is an apostle. Because Christ sends every single one of us out into the world to be salt and light. To be a witness for him. And yet, Jesus gave the word apostle not just this broad meaning that it could apply to every Christian. But also a specific meaning. In Luke 6.13 it says, Jesus called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. So, though Jesus had many disciples, he specifically chose 12 and called them apostles or sent ones. Yet the word really has even deeper roots because it comes from the Hebrew word shalak, which has the idea of one being commissioned to carry out the authority of another. We have a similar idea in our culture. We call them the power of attorney. You have entrusted this person to act for you financially, legally, medically. They have your power of eternity. We see this idea in the Old Testament. You may remember King David was interacting with this woman Abigail, and her husband died, and then King David sent apostolos, shalaks. He sent apostles or messengers to her to propose marriage. They were acting in David's behalf. They were his authorized representatives, his apostles. Now you may think this is all kind of trivial. The pastor's really going on and some pretty academic ideas. Let's get to some stuff that's important for today. And yet this still plays out in very significant ways today. I'm sure there might be some people in here who came to faith 
reading the Gospels and you fell in love with Christ, but there's a question in your mind, or you may have friends who have this question who they say, but what about the rest of the New Testament? I mean, I love what Jesus said, but should I listen to the rest of his messengers? I mean, I'm not so sure about the Apostle Paul or this book of the Hebrews or whatever. Well, I want to exhort you that your love for Jesus and his words should lead you actually to listen to the Apostle Paul and the rest of the Old and New Testament. Remember, when Jesus called these men apostles, he was making them his authorized agents who he was sending out. And listen to what Jesus said to these apostles in John 14, 26. There Jesus declared to them, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That's what the apostles conveyed in their writings was not their ideas. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit to be what Jesus had said. He makes it even clearer in John 16, 13 through 15. The very same night, same conversation where Jesus says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak of his own authority, but of whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare it to you. Now, this is not a promise to all Christians. He's not telling all Christians for all time, the Holy Spirit's going to lead you into all truth individually. He's talking to the apostles. And he's saying, it goes on, all that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Thus, the apostles' inspired words, or as 1 Corinthians 14.37 says, a command from the Lord. And if we listen to and follow what the apostles say, we're listening to what Jesus is saying to us. So I'm compelled, and I hope you're compelled to conclude that if you disagree with the apostles or you disagree with the Old Testament, you're actually disagreeing with Jesus himself. And out of your love to Jesus, out of your faithfulness to him, you'll want to listen to the Old Testament and the rest of the inspired New Testament. But you might still be wondering, but what about Paul? I mean, Luke chapter 6, he wasn't one of those apostles. Why are we listening to him? How did he get to be a part of this group? Jesus himself on the Damascus road called Paul to himself and also to be an apostle. Apostles, as we've noticed, are not nominated. They didn't run for office. God specifically called Paul to this role. He was, as he says, one untimely born. But it was, as we see in verse 1, by the will of God. And we see this by the way the other apostles responded to him. Well, there were in the New Testament. You can read of some individual Christians or professing Christians who challenge, is Paul really an apostle? Listen, what, listen to what the apostle Peter, the outspoken leader of the first disciple, says in 2 Peter 3.15. He writes of our beloved brother Paul, and then he says, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. And you may heartily agree and go, wow, I read this and I don't understand. But he continues, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Peter is saying Paul's writings are like the other scriptures, implying they are also 
Scripture. They are also God's Word. Thus, with these opening words of this letter, we see God's great transforming work of turning Saul, the hater of Christ and his followers, to one named Paul, an apostle proclaiming Christ. And with this role of apostle, he is now commissioned to speak as God's messenger in a unique way that no one can do today. Now let's consider one important application of the way God changes lives. God can take the strongest enemies and make them friends. He can take the dead and bring them to life. As well, Paul is going to say near the end of the letter, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And I'm concerned that I think many Christians today have lost sight of what is the real threat to our true wealth. It's not any flesh and blood. Rather, as Paul is showing us, it is spiritual forces. And yet Satan has done a masterful job getting us distracted from the real enemy to those who are blinded and carrying out Satan's ideas. Thus, to be real specific in my application, the enemy of Christians is not President Biden, or if you're on the other end of the political spectrum, President Trump. The most dangerous threat is not Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or Marjorie Taylor Greene. The enemy we should not should not be concerned about is not Pelosi or McConnell. The ultimate battle is to recognize our resources and riches in Christ, to live as God's sons and daughters. Now, yes, that may mean that we do need to engage in political ideas, that we do need to take every thought captive, and we need to have men and women, even Christians, engage in the political sphere. Yet let's realize that God can change the hearts even of your greatest political enemy. He can turn them from someone who is anti-Christian to one who becomes a proclaimer of Christ, just as we see with Paul right here. You know, our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, not on what's going to happen in the midterm elections, not what's going to happen with various things. Our hope is found in Christ. He is our resources. He is our wealth. Well, let's now consider to whom Paul writes. God's audience. Ephesians 1, the second part of the first verse. The audience is described as saints. It says, to the saints. Or, literally, to the holy ones. You know, surprisingly, Paul frequently uses this title for Christians. And his free use of this term makes clear it's not those who are perfect in their life here on earth. You know, in some church traditions, it's a process to become labeled a saint. The first step is not too hard. You have to die and be dead for five years. And that's the first step. And once you've been dead five years, then once any emotional inspiration around your life has gone away, then you can have the second step. A church leader can open an investigation into whether you lived a life of, ev have enough evidence in your life of holiness and virtue. Third, if in their searching they can find enough evidence of virtue, then you can become venerated. Well, fourth, after that, if they can find a miracle that has happened due to praying in your name or that you prayed for, then you can move on to the fifth step, 
And that's when the highest church leader has a special canonization service and you are now a saint. In contrast to all of that, Paul declares all Christians to be saints, to be set apart for holy use. Thus, even the Christians in Corinth were called to be saints. These are Christians who were fine with gross, unrepentant sin. These are Christians who were suing one another. These are Christians who were fighting about which apostle was the greatest. And yet, though they had seemingly no heroic virtue, I think the investigation would have led with not much on their side, Paul called them saints. Why? Because their sainthood is not tied to their works of holiness, but to Jesus' holy works and setting them apart. They, and you too if you trust in Christ, are a holy one, a saint before God. We often say, well, you know, I'm no saint. And if you're talking about being perfect in and of yourself, that's a true statement. But if you are in Christ, you are a saint. You know, a saint is not the Navy SEALs of the Christians. The saints are the basic, ordinary, every Christian, male, female, rich, poor, know your theology, don't know your theology, just tested Christ, have trusted Christ for 80 years. Every Christian is a saint. Not only are they saints, but they are ones we see next that are in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was the capital of a Roman province and a trading center with nearly 300,000 people. So imagine Wichita Falls tripled. That's the size of the city. And the city was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Temple of Artemis. In Acts 18-20, through 20, you can read of Paul's time in Ephesus, and there his time could be described by the pact that happened while there. A little acronym I came up with, probably too cheesy, but nonetheless, PACT, P-A-C-T. First, if you want to know about Paul's time, you need to know about the power that was there, P. Because while in Ephesus, several powerful things happened. Paul laid hands on some men who, in a unique historical situation, had been baptized by John the Baptist, but who had never heard of Jesus. When Paul told them of Jesus, and they believed, he laid his hands on them, and they were filled with the Spirit, spoke in tongues, and prophesied. God also worked mightily through Paul while he was there, so that even his handkerchiefs brought healing and cast demons out of people in Ephesus. You can read how others were so enamored that they tried to manipulate these spiritual powers as well, but demons overcame them. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, we read in Acts 19.17, so that the fear of God came upon them, and the name of Jesus was extolled. So there was great power when Paul was in Ephesus. Next, the second part of our pact, affection. Paul had great affection or love for the Ephesians. It was so great that he taught publicly, and we read of house to house. When Paul eventually left the area, he gathered the elders together and there was weeping as they knew that they were parting from one another. So there was power, there was affection, and third, there were changed lives. Paul's affection, his love for them, came from the fact that these people had been changed from worshippers of Artemis 
to worshipers of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, so many believed, so many turned from the worship of demons, from the worship of Artemis to Jesus, that they got together and they destroyed their magical books and they were valued at being worth 50,000 pieces of silver. Well, not everyone was excited about this happening. One man, Demetrius, a silversmith, led a riot because they're no longer receiving as much money. And this riot, they chanted, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And after this, Paul left. So to understand Paul's time in Ephesus, we need to know about the power, his affection, the changed lives, and lastly, the time there. Ephesus was one of Paul's longest stays, for he stayed in the area for three years, and as we mentioned, only ended once his life was gravely in danger. But notice that the audience was not only to the saints, but also the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, this phrase, in Christ Jesus, gets to the heart of Paul's understanding of the Christian life. Paul uses this seemingly in an unimportant prepositional phrase, in Christ Jesus. But for Paul, being in Christ, that phrase, in Christ, is essential to knowing God. You know, 36 times in this short letter, Paul will use the phrase, in Christ, to describe our relationship. The idea is, we don't just get benefits from Christ as though he's some wealthy benefactor who lives in another state, and he's heard about your situation, so you know, he'll, he'll send you some money, and he may even send you lots of money, but there's no real connection between you and this philanthropist. No, if you are a Christian, you are united to Christ. He is the vine, you are the branches. There's a relationship that is joined together. He is the head, we are the body. And thus, Jesus will say to Saul, now Paul, when he was persecuting the Christians, he'll cry out, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because there is a depth of relationship that we have when we become Christians. We are in Christ. Now we need to be clear on something here. When Paul says to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, he's not talking about two different groups. Your version may say to the saints and the faithful ones. So it might sound like, oh, well, yes, there's these Christians who are saints, and then we got group B, the faithful Christians. Well, it's not two different groups, as though like Jews and Gentiles, male or female, anything like that. Rather, Paul's giving two descriptions of the same Christians. Every Christian is both a saint and faithful. Flip in your Bible to Ephesians chapter 2, 8 through 10, where we'll see this worked out. Famous verses, you probably, many of you have them memorized. Ephesians 2, beginning in eight, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Or to use the language of verse 1, it is purely by God that we are made saints. We don't lead a faithful life and then become saints. But then Paul adds, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Or in other words, that we might be faithful. And we are not saved by our faithfulness, but by faith in Christ. But our faith in Christ is revealed 
in our faithfulness to him. Now the order of God's actions, then leading to our actions, is vitally important. And in fact, even the kind of large, what you might call the macro structure of Ephesians shows this. I have a Bible software program, and I did a search where I put in my little keys. I want to know all imperative verbs in the book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians 1 through 3, there is only one imperative. There's only one command in the first three chapters of Ephesians 3, and that's in Ephesians 2.11 where we're told to remember, which is really a command still focusing on God because it's getting us to think about God. So the first three chapters of Ephesians is all about what God has done for us in Christ. And then beginning in verse 4, he starts telling us, well, how do you live out of the fact that you are now in Christ? And the number of imperative verbs in chapter 4 through 6 is 40. One in the first part, 40 in the second. Why? Because you have to know that we love because he first loved us. If you think, well, I got to love first, so he'll, then he'll love me, you'll never have motivation to live the Christian life. But if you know he loved me first, he loved me when I was a sinner, then we can go, I'm loving him, not because I'm earning it, but because I want to. It's my joy. It's my pleasure. You know, sadly, tragically, many Christians grow up in homes or churches that really only emphasize one or the other of these two important aspects of our relationship with Christ. Some grow up in very legalistic environments with the focus being on do, do, do. Each week, the sermon is basically how you need to go and you need to do this and you need to do that and you need to do this. And people go home, beat up. Well, man, I'm really failing as a Christian. And it's always about me, me, me. What am I doing? And yet the focus is not so much on what I'm doing, but what Christ has done. It's finished. You are welcomed. You are loved. You are adopted and redeemed by Christ alone. You are a saint. You are a holy one in Christ. And with that confidence, then we're called to go out and live faithful lives. Well, some Christians hear only of do, do, do. Some Christians swing to the other end of the pendulum, so to speak, and say, well, what we do doesn't matter. It's all by faith, so yeah, it might benefit you if you obey, but it doesn't really matter if you obey. But Ephesians 2.10 says, God saved us for the very purpose of doing good works. Jesus never died for anything irrelevant or that's not important. If he saved us to do good works, they are not irrelevant. It is something he paid for with his blood. Thus we are called saints and thus set apart to lead holy and faithful lives. As we move to the last point of this opening to see God's message, let me highlight one more essential detail. Did you notice that these Christians dwell in two places? They live in Ephesus and they live in Christ. If you're a Christian, you also are in Christ and also in Maybe it's Burke Burnett or Iowa Park or Wichita Falls or whatever the case may be. But you live in two places. John Stott writing on this said, All Christian people are similar. 
and live both in Christ and in the secular world. Many of our spiritual troubles arise from our failure to remember that we are citizens of two kingdoms. We tend either to pursue Christ and withdraw from the world, or to become preoccupied with the world and to forget that we are also in Christ. And so until Jesus comes again, we live in this tension. We are in Christ and we are in Wichita Falls. And we need to be faithful representatives of Christ in Wichita Falls, not just in Wichita Falls Baptist Church. And us get together and let's make sure no one ever influences us or harms us. We need to live out our life in Christ in this community. And so that leads us to the last part of the opening, God's message. He says in verse 2, grace to you, not just a ministry based out of California. Grace to you is words that as Christians we maybe come to expect to hear, oh yeah, grace. And yet, think about the way humans normally respond when they're not treated well. Football season is starting up again, and invariably, as with every sport, the referee is going to miss a call. The fans and the players are going to be treated wrongly. Most people are then going to, ah, I can't believe he missed that call. Ah, they're going to respond in rage because a piece of leather didn't get called to go their way. Consider people what they do when they're driving on the highway and someone in a rush comes and cuts them off. They aren't normally saying grace to you. And yet, what does God do when his people that he created cut him off. Say what you're doing is wrong. Rebel against him. Well, look back, Ephesians chapter 2. We don't have to guess. And you were dead, verse 1, in trespasses, in the trespasses, in sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You've been saved. God is not like us. His first response to being treated wrong is not, boom, boom. Punishment for all eternity. Get rid of them. They're horrible. It is, how can I win them back? How can I show them unmerited favor? That's what grace means. Getting what we don't deserve. And God's grace is not just so you can be saved so that you pass from darkness to light. It's how we live each day. We live each day, each moment by the grace of God. That's why Hebrews chapter 4, when we're told about how to pray. It says, draw with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Not just our initial salvation, every day as we have need. You know, it's interesting. Paul used to boast so of his wealth, so to speak, of all that he had done for God. You know, Philippians 3 lays out how he was the cream of the crop, the best of the best, with his religious activity. His eyes were completely on himself look at all i'm doing for god and yet then when his eyes were taken off himself and put on christ 
He then no longer boasted about what he did. He boasted of his spiritual poverty. He boasted of the wealth he had by faith in Christ. Thus, Paul will extol God's grace and mention it a dozen times in this letter. Before Christ, he could only see himself. But now, he can only boast in what God has done for him in Christ. And because of that grace, we now have peace. Do you have peace in your life? Some people live in a state of constant relational conflict. Some people can't stand themselves. Some people are fine with others, but their body is at war with them. It's It's possible to think everything's at peace when in fact it is not. In November 2018, for three Fridays in a row, we had a family member go into a cardiologist and leave that appointment being told, you need surgery Monday morning or else your life is in danger. They went in going, yeah, maybe something's slightly wrong to realizing you're close to death. Things are not well. There is not peace in your body. And many people have this feeling of peace, but based on what? How do you have peace with God? Well, we can read of this. Ephesians 2, 11 through 14 tells us. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made, by, made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Paul says it this way in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Jesus secured lasting, unchanging, unending, eternal peace with God. Do you have that? As we've noted, we have this grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The amazing truth is that in Christ, God is our Father. We were by nature children of wrath, but now we are sons and daughters of God. And this happened because Jesus is not anyone, but as he says, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is important because in the Old Testament, they referred to God as Lord. And now Jesus, in Paul's view, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus was not just an insightful teacher, a great philosopher. He was God in the flesh. And amazingly, Paul calls Jesus Lord even as he sits and writes this from a Roman prison. Caesar wants everyone to call him Lord But Paul knows one day every knee will bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And thus we open this letter to the Ephesians, hearing of the riches we have in Christ. I mentioned Frugal Phil earlier, but more maybe more infamous than him is Hetty Green. You maybe have never heard of Hetty Green. I never heard of her before two, two weeks ago. But Hetty was so wealthy that when she died in 1916... She was declared to have been the richest woman alive with $100 million to her name, about $2.5 billion today. Yet though she had 
two and a half billion today, 100 million then, she was so frugal that she would eat her oatmeal cold to save from heating water. Her clothing was shabby, and though rumors have spread what she did a little bit beyond reality, she would often search for medical treatment for her children from the free clinics in town. Hetty had enormous wealth, but she lived as though she was in poverty. If you're a Christian today, you are fabulously wealthy spiritually. You have grace. You can have God's grace. You can have joy and power. Do you live out of that spiritual wealth? Or do you languish in guilt, struggle with the despair, and feel impotent in your life? Friends, live in light of the wealth you can have in Christ. If you're not a Christian, then this wealth can all be yours by just turning from your sins and trusting in Christ. God's love comes not to the deserving, but rather to those who admit, I don't deserve it. Only by God's grace can I have all of this. So won't you come and know the wealth that exists in Christ? Isaiah says it this way, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me here that your soul may live. Let's pray. O oh Lord, may we hear May we realize the riches that are there for us in Christ. Lord, we often live in fear. We often live feeling powerless, living in guilt and shame. As though there is no hope, that the world is hopeless. And yet, Lord, in your Son, there is grace. There is hope. There is power. There is joy. But would you speak through me over these next several months as we look at your word in Ephesians, that we might be built up, that we might live out of the wealth we have in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.